You are now listening to the April 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. From Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. During a particular worship service, we had a time of communion. The pastor made preparations for the communion and told the church members to quietly sing a hymn. As I was singing the simple lyrics from a single line, I was overwhelmed with emotions. It's because that one line of lyrics contained my desperate hope. Let's listen to that hymn for a moment. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. In my heart, in my heart, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. This hymn is called, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. The lyrics in the first line are, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. While I was singing this line, I was thinking of how much I wanted to be a Christian who followed Jesus Christ. At the same time, I was thinking of how I didn't fully live by following the Lord. These two thoughts were clashing and brought tears to my eyes. I went before the Lord and poured out my emotions while saying, Lord, I have not been living according to your word, but I still want to be a Christian. What kind of story did this hymn contain to make me feel such emotions? The hymn, Lord, I Want to Be a Christian, was first recorded in a book called Folk Songs of the American Negro in 1907 and became known to the public. However, this hymn was actually sung 150 years before. We don't know the exact origin of this hymnal poem, but according to 18th century records, an incident in Virginia between 1748 through 1756 became the basis for making this hymn. What was the incident? We'll find out through a drama. (music) 
There was a shameful age when the people had slaves and forced them to work as laborers and servants. Following the American Revolution, Atlantic Ocean slave trade was brought to an end. But in the southern states that centered on agriculture, slavery still continued. In 1700, the population ratio of the states with the most number of slaves in America were South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia. The farms with the highest production of tobacco, sugar, and cotton had the slaves do all the harsh labor. Slaves had no rights, and their value was determined by how much work they could produce. They were treated as property that could be bought and sold for money. We're all strong and young lad here. Look at his muscles; he can do a lot of work. Oh, I'll buy him. No, no, I'll buy him. These black slaves were sold, and they were no different from livestock that worked and served their owners. To those who led such a difficult life of slavery, the gospel of Jesus Christ was slowly being spread to them. The black slaves could not attend the same worship service as their white owners. Most white owners did not like the fact that the black slaves were hearing the gospel message. However, among the white owners, there were those who realized the truth of the gospel and began to oppose slavery. They also made an effort to spread the gospel to the black slaves. In 1750, in Hanover, Virginia, there was a pastor named William Davis. We must discard our old selves and put on the new selves. This cannot be done by our own strength, but only through the power of Jesus Christ. Have you put on a new self? Have you entered into Christ to be born again in the Lord? Here is Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone; the new is here. Do not be fixated on your past. The past has passed. Gain new life in the Lord. Pastor, through today's message, I desire to be born again as a new life in the Lord. Thank you. Yes, Amen. That is how you should be. Thank you, Pastor. We'll see you next week. Yes, have a victorious week. After ending Sunday worship, Pastor Davis was organizing his office. Then someone knocked on the door. Yes, come in. Even though Pastor Davis said to come in, the door didn't open. Come on in, huh? Did I mistakenly hear something? I'm sure I definitely heard a knock. Pastor Davis thought it was strange how someone knocked and wasn't coming in, so he opened the door. Then he saw a black slave standing while looking at the ground as if he was in fear. What's wrong? It's not time for you to clean yet. Did your owner tell you to come here and clean, Pastor? I have something to tell you. Tell me what you need to say. Today, I was working at the garden next to the church, and I heard your sermon. Oh, you heard the sermon? Yes. Well, do you have some kind of question? Yes. You see that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Yes, that's right. 
Does that include a black slave like me? When the question was asked, does that include a black slave like me? Pastor Davis was momentarily at a loss for words. It's because he never thought of this before. However, in his heart, he had a realization from the Holy Spirit. Of course! Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you can definitely be reborn as a new creation if you are in Jesus Christ. Really? If so, I want to be a Christian too. I want to be a new creation. I want to be a true believer. Pastor Davis held the hands of the black slaves who said he wanted to be a Christian too. They prayed that he would be born again. The brother was able to experience being born again as a new creation in Christ. A black slave came to Pastor Davis and confessed, Sir, I want to be a Christian in my heart. His confession was shared with the other black slaves, and many black slaves began to accept Jesus as Savior. The black slaves added several lyrics to this confession and sang it as a song. This song was later recorded in the African American Spiritual Hymnal Book. The power of the gospel became more widespread, and many white slave owners repented. In 1850, there began liberation campaigns. And in December 1865, slavery was abolished. Although many black slaves had the status as slaves, they wanted to be born again as new creations in Christ. I hope that their desperate confession will be within us today. We'll end Near My God to Thee here.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, When You Wonder Why. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Acts chapter 8. The church has been flourishing, but now all of a sudden, the church experienced persecution. It began with Stephen, who was taken by the religious leaders. They were called the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court, religious Supreme Court. And they took him and they stoned him. And we're introduced just kind of as an aside. There was a young man who was holding the robes of those who were stoning Stephen. And we'll learn about him really fast here in chapter 8. Verse 1, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church had been all together in Jerusalem, this thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people saved. And the ripple effect was going throughout Jerusalem and Judea. And the amazing thing was that their unity kept them together, and that was good and bad. It was good because they always wanted to be together, but it was bad because Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8, what he said, what did he say? And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you will be my witness first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were all together in where? Jerusalem. So persecution starts Who would have thought this terrible thing is happening? But God's hand is in this. And if it hadn't happened, you wouldn't be here right now. Your kids kids wouldn't be saved. The friends that you've brought to Jesus wouldn't have been saved. I mean, if this persecution hadn't happened, it says, and they were scattered, doesn't it? And they were scattered. And this is kind of what I think about. You know, it's how do you get a fire You got a fire right here. How do you get a fire to move out? Well, you scatter the coals, don't you? And the fire begins to burn in other places. And so the scattering is God's will to get the word out and to get it out of Jerusalem. And now it was more than, we're talking about people being killed. We're talking about people being arrested, their property being taken away and all. And in the midst of all, it says that people began to, Uh, Scatter, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. These brave men, they stayed. Isn't that cool? The leaders didn't leave. They said they stayed. Of course, they would have to have gone in hiding. They were controlling and directing things from Jerusalem still, but these brave, they didn't go and run away. I love it when you see courageous leadership, Amen. And that's what we see in our church here in the book of Acts. Our leaders, our apostles, they're bold, they're brave guys. And then there's a little flashback to Stephen. Devout man buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. He was greatly loved. But now the focus comes on this guy named, verse 3, Saul. You're right. He was ravaging the church. 
The word ravaging would be if you, do you know what a bore is? Yeah, you, Pastor Mark. No, 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 no. No. You know what a bore animal is, right? Okay. Well, if you were to injure a boar, that boar would begin to go crazy, right? Lashing out, wanting to kill. That's the word ravage here. And Saul began to ravage the church, to tear into it, to try to kill it with this rage. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Just a little bit more about Saul before we move on is their vote. It says in verse chapter 8, 1, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. The word approved means voted. So apparently, even though there was this crazy, you know, mob-like scene when Stephen was taken to be stoned, there was still a vote that went on. And the vote would have been among the Sanhedrin, and apparently Saul was part of it. Now I'm going to go into a little bit of conjecture here, so this you could... It could be very well. But to be a member of the Sanhedrin, generally you needed to be of a certain age, a little bit older. You wouldn't always been described as a young man. And you needed to be married. But because he voted, what we think is that Paul so stood above all these other people. He was such a a wise young guy. That perhaps in his 30s, he's now in the Sanhedrin. He's a voting member. Ah, you say, but the Sanhedrin, the men had to be married. Good point. He's not married when he begins you know, his ministry as Paul. He talks about being celibate. So he couldn't have been a member of the Sanhedrin. Or, like I say, the Bible doesn't say here so You understand this, right? The Bible doesn't say. But why was he a member of Sanhedrin? Well, maybe he was married, but when he accepted Christ, his wife divorced him, and he never remarried. Or she died, and he was a widow. Anyway, it makes sense to me that perhaps she, she divorced him because, I mean, he is, he's, she would have been with him in this desire to destroy the church. Okay, that, that, enough said on that. So you can take that with a grain of salt. Now, um, so the church is scattered and uh, all over the place, but it's as Jesus, beginning what Jesus said would and should happen, that the gospel will go out to these places. Now, in verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Yes, that's what God wanted them to do. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. Now, we were introduced to Philip back in chapter 6, verse 5. He is one of the seven first deacons. He and Stephen are named right next to each other, and I just wonder if it's because... These two are just outstanding men. We know Stephen was Stephen, who was 
stoned and died for Christ, the first martyr of the church is in chapter 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. So this Philip that we're reading about here in chapter 8, verse 4, is, or 8, verse 5, is Philip the deacon. Philip, one of these administrators of the early church, he served well as a deacon, but Jesus gave him the gift of being an evangelist as well. And man, was he ever a... We're going to hear his story in uh, the rest of this chapter, and it's just going to blow you away. It's so crazy. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, you have to, you have to, maybe you know or you remember that the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And this went back 800 years. It wasn't like a new thing. This goes back 800 years to when the Jews were taken out of Israel by the Babylonians, but some of them were left. And those Jews intermarried with some of the Gentiles. When the Jews came back from Babylon 70 years later, these people, the Samaritans, they wanted to help rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And the Jews, the pure-blooded ones, said, no way, you're mixed. You, don't, we can't, you can't have anything to do with this. Well, that's where the offense started. And thereafter, there were other things. There's some talk that maybe they even... Eh, never mind. Um, I'm the teacher, and I could, I could just go on forever, you guys, right? I think a lot and read a lot. But. So this is a long-standing hatred, Jews and Samaritans. And that's why in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, she's a what? Samaritan. What Jews would not go through Samaria to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. A straight line would have been the easiest way. You would have you go straight through Samaria, though. So Jews would always, you know, take a detour around the area of Samaria, so they wouldn't have to be defiled by the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were just as happy they weren't coming through anyway. Uh, there is this hatred, but when Jesus in John 4 went to uh, Samaria, I know his, his disciples were thinking, okay, well, we're going to Jerusalem, but don't we need to go around? And Jesus, it says in chapter 4, and Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. I must go. Jesus is not concerned about our racial barriers. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand. I understand issues to the best that I can, being who I am. But in terms of, of Christ, there's no people that he rejects. Jesus met this woman in Samaria, and her life was changed. A little bit of pre-evangelism going on there, because a while later, Philip is going to end up in Samaria. First, you'll preach in Jerusalem, then Judea, then you'll go to ah, Samaria. Yes. You died for Samaritans? Yes. So Philip is there and he's preaching. And let's see what's happening. 
He proclaims the Messiah to them in verse 6. And the crowds with one accord, they were just paid attention to what Philip was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and he saw the sons, I'm sorry, verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. Amen? You know, where where the message of Christ goes, it brings with it joy. There is joy in Christ. There's joy in Jesus because of our newfound relationship with God. And he gives us a reason to live and the power to live and strength to go through the difficult times. And these same miracles that Philip is performed by Stephen and the other apostles. We've read about these miracles already. The demons cast out, the sick are healed. And seeing these, these, these signs backing up his, his preaching, they saw this is the real deal. But there's a commercial, and then up comes a whole different part of the story. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This is the first time that I'm aware of that the church confronts sorcery, uh, dark power, witchcraft, magic. The apostle Paul will again encounter it and there'll be a tremendous uh, crusade of evangelism and Jesus will do an amazing thing in that situation as well. I mean, I, I watch these televangelists, not much, but I watch them. I won't name any, but, you know, they, they have these huge crusades. I just wonder, Lord, how can this be? How can so many people pack these huge venues to listen to nothing, basically? There's never verse-by-verse verse anything. It's always, you know, if you really listen, there's no substance, truly. I'm not picking on anybody. You listen yourself, all right? But then I, 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 I hear and you watch people that are supposedly healed or, and you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And maybe somebody is healed. But if this was a real deal, I just have to tell you guys, why doesn't that man or woman that has the power to heal and has their name, their ministry named after them, a little bit of ego there, why don't they go to Phoenix Children's Hospital and empty the place? Amen. Why not? And not charge a nickel and not take an offering and just make those parents 
turn from sorrow to joy. Why not? You can come up with the answers. These are just questions that come. And why do they wear glasses? Have you noticed that too? And they're bazillionaires. One of them has $500 million net worth. And what that would do in going forth and spreading the gospel in Africa and in Central America. I mean, come on. Simonry is a term for those who would buy a position in the church. And so in verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip, they heard the gospel, and it was like, oh, well, this is a real deal. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Gang, that Greek word means out of his senses. It's just like, woo, I know what I did. Maybe maybe he wasn't faking it all. Maybe there was demonic power. Whatever, he was amazed. Whoa, what is it? How did he do it? He touched them a certain way or he lifted them up and they could walk. This is so cool. Okay, we're going to read on. I just want to, I want to finish him up. Let's look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands. No, I'm not going to do that. Let's just go. Let's just go back to 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Uh Uh-oh. And Peter said to him, may your money follow you to hell because that's where you're going. That's basically what the Greek, the picture of the Greek. I'm not kidding you. I mean, it says, it's translated, um, may... uh, He says, may your silver perish with you. That means eternal destruction. And because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. May repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness, you're jealous, and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Okay, there's lots of questions. Did he really believe and is he lost? Did he really believe and he, he did this and he was forgiven and everything went on? Um, those are questions that, frankly, guys, I, I've studied and, and I know you will study and there just isn't a clear answer. Several um, decades after this, one church leader writes, that ancient church leader writes, that 
he began to be, um, teach all kinds of heresies. And that uh, he started many false teachings in the church. But, but that even can't be proven. So what happens to him? I'm not sure. I just know that may your money follow you into hell because that's where you're going is what the warning is from Peter. You cannot buy the gift of God. Do you believe that? You can't buy it. So for your love gift of so-and-so, you know, just put it in the envelope and we'll pray over you in order that you might be healed. You hear this kind of stuff nowadays in the church. It's like, really? Jesus never charged a nickel, never even, never even inferred that, well, you know, if, if you think about giving to me, then I'll, I'll heal you. Are you kidding me? The gospel is free. The gifts and power of God are free. Relationship with God is free. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to go back now and spend a little bit of time on, um, on looking at what happened. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news, verse 12, the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. Do you hear me? <laughs> they believed and they were baptized. We're going to have an illustration of another guy, an Ethiopian guy in the next part of this chapter. He believes and is baptized. Peter talks to him, and Peter says, and you want to be baptized now that you believe? He stops his chariot, and they find this little place of water. Don't think a big river. It was a well. I'll tell you more about that. They found this place of water, and he says, I want to be baptized here and now. There's some water. Why do Christians wait to be baptized? Well, it could be because there's not opportunity, because we're, you know, we're in a different kind of church situation. There's no opportunity, okay? It could be because um, there's not a place. We could, it could be because, hey, then we get into because we're afraid of water, okay? It could be because... We don't want to be embarrassed coming up out of water because baptism is by immersion. You go down under the water, you come up because it represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture of that. They don't want to embarrass by how they look. They're afraid of being up front. You know, that's number one fear that people have. You might be, think it'd be falling off the Grand Canyon, you know, down into... The number one fear people have is standing in front. It's public speaking. It's the number one fear people have. <laughs> so, man, I'd be front and center and all eyes on me, all those fears. I'm just going to say to you one thing. Jesus died for you on the cross publicly. He was not ashamed. He died for you and he says, follow me be baptized, and so we obey him because we follow his commands, all right? So next week, we are having a baptism. Amen. So if you haven't been baptized for any of the, oh, and I don't have anything to wear, <laughs> God should cover, literally, okay? We have things you can change into. Just taking all the excuses away, gang. 
Well, I only come to, I might miss a service. Well, we're going to do it at 11 o'clock service too. You know the Holy Spirit is, is pulling you. This is where you can really, I think when we are baptized, and I don't have Bible proof for this, I think, and I probably shouldn't say what I think, but I do think that when you're baptized, you go up. It's just like you step up another level in your walk with the Lord because you're being obedient and every step of obedience is just a step closer to uh, fellowship and intimacy with God. So forget those stupid excuses that we have. They're meaningless. And when you're in that baptistry, the Holy Spirit, he is there in a special way. And, and suddenly your mind isn't on any of these things because it's all about Jesus. And as we're praying over you, you're hearing the words of blessing that are coming upon you. And I'm telling you, you're not thinking about people. You're not thinking about hair. You're not thinking about this stuff. You're thinking about your Savior and you're sensing his power. When they believed Philip, verse 12, they believed the good news. They were baptized, both men and women. And it says in verse 14, and now when the apostles in Jerusalem, (laughs) word gets to the apostles that the Samaritans had believed and were baptized. (laughs) The apostles are going, wait a minute. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) Because these are Samaritans. Samaritans can be saved. I mean, truly, you guys, this was a shocker. I am sure that's why the apostles came to Samaria. to. We got to see this thing for ourselves. We want to make sure this is for real. We want to make sure those Samaritans aren't deceiving anybody. So they send Peter and John Verse, I have LOL <laughs> at the end of verse 14. They send Peter of John to go and say, check this out. So they checked it out. And it says, they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. For they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on hands, he wanted to buy it. So the Samaritans were saved, right? They believed in Jesus. Amen? We're all there. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit instantly comes where? In us. In us. Inside us. Yes. Oh, immediately comes inside us, instantly, and we are sealed. God marks us. The word sealed means to think about putting a dot and drawing a circle around it. You're the dot, and God puts a circle around you. You are his forever. So Jesus had drawn them to him, okay? And the Holy Spirit drew them. Then the Holy Spirit came in them. But Peter and John, as they came, they realized, okay, you've been baptized only in Jesus. You've been baptized. You're saved. But there's more. Let's pray for you that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll get power. And we're talking about Pentecostal power. We're talking about they have Pentecost or the Samaritans. And so we prayed upon them. They laid hands upon them. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. Well, what happened? 
Oh, no, something happened. Because Simon, it was so amazing that Simon saw it. It says it, right? He saw, and he wanted to buy the power to do that. What happened? I believe, it, I believe frankly, they began speaking in tongues. I do, because in chapter 10, the same thing's going to be talked about, and the Gentiles begin speaking in tongues. I think in Acts uh, 1, 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began speaking in tongues. Do I think speaking in tongues is the proof that the Holy Spirit has come upon you? Absolutely not. Do I think that it is an evidence? It can be. Yeah, I believe that too. Do I believe that the gift of speaking in tongues is for everybody? No, but I wished it were. That's what the Apostle Paul said. I wish you all spoke in tongues because it edifies you. Some of you are going, this is crazy. I'm afraid I want to leave. (laughs) I will talk about it more sometime, okay? But something happened, and they were given power because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power, Acts 1.8, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So look at it this way. Something happened. Something visible. Something real happened. And we know for sure they received power. Amen? I mean, they were saved already. But they were prayed for and they received power. Power to what? Live for Jesus. Power to love. Power to have victory over sin. And we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this another time. But these people believed God's grace went forward in spite of, you know, again, you look back and you think, Lord, what are you doing? This just seems like the worst thing. Persecution. Losing my job. Losing my house. (laughs) Hey, we just haven't seen the end yet. The last chapter hasn't been written. We do have this wonderful book, though, this holy book that does, we do see the last chapter. It is pretty good, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that in your love, you have called us to be your children, that you have drawn us to yourself, that you want to protect us from Uh, the wicked things of this world. You don't want us to be fooled by counterfeit things, and so that's why you've given us your word. That's why we're studying together. Continue to give us a super hunger for, for you, and do empower us. We're gonna go out these doors. We're gonna... We're going to move on through this next week, and we're going to face things that challenge us, maybe things that have for years and and have pushed us over, and we're asking now in the name of Jesus that power would give given to us so that when this stuff is in front of us, we are able in Christ's name and the power of the Holy Spirit to just walk right over it and go forward and move forward victoriously. We're asking this through the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.
that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me to life I know that it is finished The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Where he says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. This is too hard to bear, these people repenting. We think it's crazy to think this way, right? But Jonah has messed up thinking like we often do. And the reaction to his own messed up thinking is anger. Jonah was leaning on his own understanding, and we need to see that today. As we do, as we are tempted to do also in serving the Lord. As we saw last week, our salvation is good, and so is our sanctification. 
the difficulties or discipline that God brings on us, which we may see as evil, are not evil. It is good because God is bringing about the character of Christ in us. And if we are not confronted for our stinking thinking, then we will get angry just like Jonah. And as we saw last week in detail, and you can listen to it another time, but we give Satan a place in our lives. We give Satan a place in our thinking. So there we see Jonah very upset. Take my life from me for death is better than life. But God is gracious. And God confronts him first and foremost with his word. Verse 4. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you remember we saw last week this phrase could be translated this way, and I lean towards it, I'm not fully set on it, but it is doing good angering you. Jonah saw it as evil, God does good. The salvation of the Ninevites was good. Is that doing of good, their salvation, Jonah, angering you? God went right to the point. He addressed Jonah's error right on focus. Jonah saw it as evil, but it was the doing of good. And at this point, we move to our portion in the chapter 4, verse 5, which I believe we're going to see that God uses difficulty combined with his word to reveal our sinful thinking and thus our sinful behaviors. He's going to address our messed up thinking here with the word of God, and then he's going to use discipline to pave the way for Jonah to respond to that word as he shares with him again. To our passage today, chapter 4, verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord God said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, on which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? as well as many animals. And that's it. The end of Jonah ends in a question. But what do we see here? First of all, the Lord God had said to Jonah while he was in the city, do you have good reason to be angry? Verse 4, right? Is doing good angering you? And then look at what Jonah's response is. Verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city. Then, right away, boom, Hebrew text. God said this to him. Then Jonah split. 
Jonah went out from the city east of it. He should have been going through the city a three days walk. It's one day that has gone by and God confronts Jonah's thinking right away as he is serving him. And I believe God confronts our thinking through his word right away when we serve him and things are wrong. He confronts him right away and look at Jonah's response. Then he went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Right away, Vav consecutive in Hebrew, Jonah went out from the city. God confronted him and he split. This is important to note because Jonah was actually in the middle of obeying God, but he didn't like it. And God confronted his disobedient attitude underneath the external obedience. And he got mad again. And he left. And God intervenes with a question. Some of you may be serving the Lord with the wrong attitude. And God is going to intervene in your life if you are a true believer with his word. And he's going to address your attitudes. He's going to address our attitudes. Will you get angry and split? I see that all the time. Maybe not all the time, but I see it a lot. People serve with the wrong motives and someone comes alongside them and graciously shows them the word concerning those attitudes and boom, they are gone to the next church. Jonah's off. He's still going to wait for God to do something, but he is gone from what God had called him to do. Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. This is an affirmation of a proverb which Jonah should have known. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against sound wisdom. Jonah should have known that. Jonah splits, but God, as we will see, will confront him again. Now, it's interesting, he says, he sat east of it. Now, we don't want to make too much of this, but in Scripture, there is a precedent for God declaring this idea of east, and we need to look at that a little bit. If you remember in Genesis, in the garden, the cherubim were stationed east. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled east of Eden. In Genesis chapters 10 and 11, in disobedience, mankind stayed together and journeyed east and settled in the plain of Shinar and built the Tower of Babel. So why does the author mention east? It certainly could be just because that's the direction he went. But often in the Old Testament, there is a parallel theme speaking to the point of disobedience. And that's quite possible that in God's sovereignty, the direction Jonah went was the same direction that he uses to relay the disobedience of others in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to hold hard and fast to that, but it's something interesting to note. Jonah says here, he settled, he went out east of it. So then in the midst of a great revival, Jonah gets angry and God confronts him with the word. He gets up and splits. He is a stubborn man rebelling against God. God commanded him to go to Nineveh, great city, three days walk. Chapter 3, verse 3. He began that. Chapter 3, verse 4. The city repents. He's not even all the way through yet. God confronts him, and he splits. Goes right out. And he makes a booth for himself. Same word that they used concerning the Feast of Booths. Little shanty shacks, like a little tent. He makes a booth there, a shelter for himself, and sat under it, middle of five, until he could see what would happen to the city. Remember, Jonah's message was, yet 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. So he is stubbornly going out, okay, I'm going to see what happens to this city. 
I'm going to see if God does it my way. Jonah's totally messed up, folks, and we see it. But we're messed up too. And God uses his word to confront our messed up thinking also. Jonah is a believer, but God's not going to let him get away with such behavior. And if you are a believer and you have a bad attitude in the midst of serving, God's going to not let you get away with that attitude if you are a true believer. Notice what happens next. God disciplines Jonah to get to the root of the matter here. And I believe we're going to see Jonah is a sinful, selfish worm who lacks godly compassion. He's the worm of the story here. Verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. So first of all, Jonah rebelliously disobeys and goes out of the city and he's going to see if God's going to wipe it out stubbornly, right? He's got a few days to wait there. He makes a shelter. And God appoints a plant to relieve Jonah. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his evil or discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now I think first of all we need to recognize this is a miracle that God does. He appoints a plant as we see later on in verse 10. It grows up in one day and it's dead in another day, right? It's up in one day. And I don't know of any plant that grows that high in one day, and there's all sorts of non-believing religious scholars that want to figure out ways that plants will grow that way in a day. It's a miracle. The Lord God appointed the plant. The Lord God. Jonah was in discomfort because of the sun. This area where Nineveh is is modern-day Monsoon, Iraq. It's really hot out there. Jonah was, by the way, in the city. He probably could have gone in and prayed with some of these repentant sinners and hung out with them, but he splits and goes into the desert. And it's hot. So God appoints this plant, and we have the term the Lord God here, Yahweh Elohim. It is the great I Am. It is the sovereign God. It's only used earlier in chapter 1, once, verse 9, where Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God, the Sovereign One. It is the Lord God who is sovereign over salvation. He is sovereign over His servants. He is sovereign over creation. And He caused the plant to grow in one day. And this term plant speaks of a generic garden-type plant. It could have been a castor vine or a gourd-type plant. The, the type of plant is really not important. What is important that God brought it about miraculously in a day. And I actually believe, as I have studied this passage, that I don't think Jonah was under any misconception that this was just a normal plant. I think this was part of God's lesson that he was doing with Jonah here. He miraculously took care of Jonah's discomfort with this plant. Plants don't grow six or seven feet in one day. And I believe the miraculous nature of this plant was obvious to Jonah and I believe it's quite possible that Jonah thought it was an affirmation of his departure. Maybe God is on my side. Maybe he is going to destroy Nineveh. Okay. Maybe I'm right. I'm sure he thought he was right. But now he thinks now God's coming around. 
Now, was God tricking him because he's going to destroy the plant? No, we'll see. God was revealing a wicked heart. That's what he was doing. And he was going to use discipline to do that. He was going to give and take away. He was going to make him comfortable, and then he was going to take it away to show elements of Jonah's heart, which he was really not seeing properly. Now, notice in the end of verse 6, it says, And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. He is really furious. He splits from the city. He goes, he makes this booth, he sits down, and God causes this plant to grow. And Jonah is rejoicing. You could literally translate this, Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. He was happy because of this plant. Now, obviously, folks, doesn't something strike you here? Jonah is greatly rejoicing because he's been delivered from the calamity of the heat of the sun. The Ninevites were delivered from great calamity, their eternal judgment. And Jonah should have been rejoicing greatly at that. And he wasn't because his thinking was messed up. Because his view of God was all skewed. It was based on his own wisdom and his own understanding. The Ninevites repent. Jonah gets mad. God confronts Jonah. Jonah splits to see if he'll destroy it. Jonah begins to experience great discomfort. God appoints a plant. It grows over him. He's extremely happy. We're going to see that Jonah's messed up. That his whole focus, his compassion and pity is all self-centered. Jonah's happy about what affects him and not others. Even a little plant or a big plant. And I believe this ought to be a clue to what the Lord is trying to reveal. Jonah is happy about the good things from God's hand that happened to him. But he is greatly displeased concerning the good things that God does to others. And I want to ask you, what do you rejoice in? Is it the work of God through the word of God towards others? Or is your rejoicing centered around your own favorable circumstances, whether it's in ministry or whatever it is? What are you rejoicing? Jonah's really happy here. He probably went to bed that night just with a smile on his face, looking at his plant he loves so much, waiting for God to destroy the city, which he expects now. Very happy, greatly rejoicing. But what happens the next day? Verse 7, but God... We've had a lot of but Jonah's in here in this book. Now we have but God. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. So God is doing some more appointing here. The worm gets the job for the living God and the worm's job is to attack the plant. On a side note, we'll see later on that this worm brings about the only destruction in the book of Jonah, which is the plant. But this little worm does his job. Verse 7, God appointed a worm when the dawn came. The next day, next day, so Jonah had a nice sleep that night, probably very happy. And it attacked the plant and it withered. The only destruction in the book of Jonah. Sailors saved chapter 1. Jonah's life spared chapter 2. Ninevites spared chapter 3. Chapter 4, worm attacks plant and it dies. This is the plant that Jonah's extremely happy over. But God's not finished here. It gets worse for Jonah. Verse 8. And when it came about, the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. God is sovereignly causing things to be difficult. He sovereignly allowed them to be good. 
So we need to be careful when we say, God opened that door. Well, maybe he did, but why did he open the door? Why did he do that? Here we're going to see that God blessed Jonah for the purpose of taking it away so that Jonah would see ultimately his own sinfulness. So it came about when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. God has been sovereignly controlling these circumstances for Jonah's discipline all the way through. The storm, the fish, all these things, the plant, the worm, the scorching east wind. Now, a lot of people write a lot of stuff about this, and they say this wind is most likely the Sirocco, a wind that causes the temperature in the desert to go up dramatically with a drop of humidity, a constantly hot wind mixed with sand, and that's possible, obviously, but all God says here is it's a scorching each wind, and that just means it's hot. And the text says the sun beat down on Jonah's head. What's the result here? Middle of verse 8. Jonah became faint. He became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Extremely happy the day before. Now he's begging to die again. Here we go. Selfish Jonah again, just like us at times. Things get difficult and he wants to die. Death is better than life. It would be much better not to be around. This is so difficult. Now, you may not have said that in those certain words, but maybe you've had those thoughts at times where you've felt like, boy, it's too hard. Those sinful, satanic thoughts based on a wrong view of your circumstances. And he begged with all his soul. Now, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, who is causing this discomfort here. It is God. It is the sovereign Lord who giveth and taketh away. He is doing so in the life of Jonah, as I believe we will see, to prepare the way for his word. Jonah has rejected God's word so far concerning his attitude, but God is now making things difficult again for Jonah to prepare the way for him to hear his word, to reveal his sinful attitudes and actions. And folks, if you're serving the Lord God as a believer with the wrong attitudes, expecting things to happen your way rather than what God says in his word, God is going to bring difficult things in your life. He's going to discipline you and I. He's going to humble our hearts to prepare it to hear the word of God concerning our wrong thinking. God uses discomfort to cause us to come to our senses, to prepare us to respond to his truth. Hebrews chapter 12, a quote of a portion of Proverbs chapter 3, which Jonah would have known. Hebrews 12:4, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten, you Hebrews, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Jonah obviously forgot this too. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or faint when you are reproved. Jonah's fainting, right? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. Jonah should have known that. But if you are without the discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. Jonah's not acting very holy right now. I mean, he's not exhibiting Christ-likeness at all, and God is disciplining him just like he does with us. 
Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.